Well, in preparation for this episode, uh, I, the, you know, Russia did some stuff. So mm-hmm. um, while I would like to probably talk about it, I don't have like any information. So, yeah, I would not say that I'm a modern foreign policy specialist or am willing to. Hey, Chibi. Um, I I don't think I have any like great insight or uh or way to come in here and be like, yeah, look how dumb these people are. Look how smart this this play was, or look at the strategy. Um, you know, I I think I think he's in he's invading. I think it's re- that's really happening. <laughs> I don't think that's some false false flag. Um, but. It's it's weird it the like the differences in this versus sort of the first uh, uh, salvos of war that I remember from childhood of the first Gulf War and seeing all of the um, tracers being fired over Tel Aviv and stuff. Um, like it seems almost like uh, this war is a. Uh, the the future war that we were all told about in like movies and stuff where so much of it is going to be like misinformation and fake videos on the internet and then you'll go cut to the reporter like on the beach where they say they're landing craft to invade the country and the reporter's like I'm standing on the beach and there's no one here I don't I don't know what else to tell you I don't know how to describe to you that there's no one making a beach landing invasion right now but here I am standing on the beach and it's not happening but then like in social media you'll have like oh my god look at all these craft landing on the beach <laughs> and like so there is that uh you know the future war of misinformation and maybe uh you know russia's trying to put out so much disinformation that it actually scares the people of ukraine into thinking that there are actually these extra large troop advancements being happening that aren't happening so they'll go ahead and just surrender or something like i don't i don't really under really get the internal mechanisms of it all but who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only thing I definitely know is I think the um not <clears throat> not encouraging people to die is probably where I would fall. Okay. That's good. Um, That's a good side to be on in war. <laughs> well, you know, surprisingly that is not <laughs> a a stance a lot of people take. Heard it here first. Online. Surprisingly, Eric Beal comes out as pro-life. <laughs> See another Tucker Carl- Carlson <laughs> visit coming up. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the Oh, 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 oh,
So yeah, I don't really have anything else to say on it just because I don't know anything about it really. Um, and I think it's just really weird that the, like, I don't know, the, uh, so in college I took a Slavic and Eastern European studies course. So kind of an expert Mm -hmm. on, uh, the Slavic, uh, peoples. Well, and, and Baylor gives you that true right down the middle, you know, mm-hmm. no partisan angle, no religious angle bias version of the Slavic history, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I luckily my professor was Canadian, so oh. <laughs> um, so he was he was sure to not give us the American version. He uh You, you he, mean like that fascist Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> right. He the professor, I can't remember whatever I can never remember what war we were covering. I'm trying to make sure this isn't okay. I think I'm not peeking. Um, we're covering whatever war in the I don't know region, the Crimean Balkans or war? something. No, I mean this was it was like the a war that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, something. The Balkans is that correct? Yeah. Um, and just the how massive it was like on you know it was a war pretty much maybe it was in the night i can't remember um but i i remember asking like this is crazy like this whole thing happened maybe it was within my lifetime and how did like i never hear about it until i was in this class and he snapped at me and he's like because your government only cares about countries with oil (laughs) i was like listen buddy (laughs) wait a second wait a second i thought the whole point of this thing i thought the whole point of this whole ukrainian business was oil what what are we talking about here (laughs) yeah exactly listen do you want that visa revoked or not (laughs) how about we not snap at our students but um have you heard of the nord pipeline eric (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't in college yesterday. <laughs> uh, so it's weird because I can certainly see like where, uh, I don't know, Putin. Putin is somebody that I honestly feel he believes like he's living at the end of history. Yeah, yeah. He definitely feels like um, all of those guys that our parents told us about were the great uh, leaders of Western civilization, you know, that uh, had imperial dominated mindsets and thought that that was somehow like a righteous plan from from divinity for them to to make sure that they made the world in that image. <laughs> you know, all the people that we were taught were our heroes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so I can also see like his side though somebody who certainly could be fine with like everybody dying because at least he was in charge Um, I can see that perspective though being like well these are Slavic people they want to be part of Russia like in those regions that the militants have taken over And then I can see, you know, well, supporting Ukraine outright is not great because it's not a great country. There's a lot of problems. They got, you know, 
neo-Nazi flanks in their military. And then you look at Russia, and it's like, well, they've also got plenty of neo-Nazis in their military. And then you look at America, and you're like, yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) of neo-Nazis here. Neo-Nazis here, too. Uh, All right. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's a... as Josh was telling me beforehand, uh, we need, we just need to all come together and look at the center. <laughs> yeah, come to the center and find find the center approach. That's the way through this. If we can just <laughs> find the one guy who's like willing to uh to bring all the parties together, maybe at like a table that's straddling a fence. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you can stick your hand over the fence and shake shake the other guy in the. Look him in the eye. Be like, look, I'm Ukraine, sh- don't you see how maybe Putin does deserve some of the land? <laughs> <laughs> and Putin, don't you kind of see how maybe Ukraine does deserve to have its people not be killed? All right. All right. I see us working oh. towards the middle here. We're working. It's progress, <laughs> mediation. <laughs> how about, yeah, I mean, that would be the Putin's decision would be. Okay, how about we then kill all the people, but we get the land that's right. down the middle. It's what we both want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, see, this this works out perfect because then you won't want the land anymore because you'll be dead. Exactly. I've solved the problem. It's like the Ben Shapiro, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like line of thinking whenever somebody was talking about global warming and how you know people live on the coast. And so, you know, what are they going to do with their homes? And Ben Shapiro's like, just sell your house. It's not that hard. There's going to be so many people who want to buy those flooded homes. You're going to make millions of dollars that move to Colorado. It seems pretty straightforward to me. I don't know. (laughs) I've I've seen, uh, oh, no, not Aqua Teen. C-Lab. I've seen C-Lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should just start building underwater domes now for when the water, mm-hmm. you know, overtakes them. Right. So that was pretty much all I had. But before. But um, speaking of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I did have this uh, other thing that I needed to do okay. to get out of the way. So okay. last week, last week we made a comment, and. Uh, so I have gathered my thoughts, I've listened, and I've grown as a person. So uh, I apologize to Justin for disregarding his amazingly well-timed text message. He deserves it. <laughs> he also deserves an apology for my poor judgment on the way out of New York's Terminal 4, which led me to believe I was entitled to Al Fresco seating at the airport, but now I know how that went, stickily. And to my fans who aren't fashion bloggers, to my friends who aren't fashionistas, to any of the people I've let down, thank you for your patience, your unwavering love and support. For my friends who do have their own blogs, uh, I want to thank you for always thinking of me and always asking how I'm doing. You're the best. Your intrepid podcaster, Eric. (laughs) If it sounds like an AI wrote that apology, then sue me. Uh, you should just program more AIs, I think. <laughs> <clears throat> well, well, I, I'll. I'm. I'm glad that you got that out of the way. I. I know the. Uh, we had heard a lot of complaints, a lot of Twitter, you know, anger directed towards you. People saying they'll never listen to the podcast again, and 
now now we know who you really are, Eric. I thought we were like minded, but now <laughs> now that I know who you really are, I just I I only wish the worst upon you. So hopefully this uh this smooth some of those rough waters. Yeah, maybe we can extend an olive branch and um you know, have him back on to debate me about something. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah, he can he can explain to you the, uh, the all the conflicts that happened in the Slavic regions from the 70s through the 90s and see if you remember any of them correctly. Yeah, well, it helps to have somebody that was there. Because <laughs> he's old. He's <laughs> like 36 or something. <clears throat> oh, speaking of age, not to put the spotlight directly on myself, but this will be the the last podcast that I do in my 30s. Wow. So congratulations. All of those all of these sophomoric bullshit opinions, I'm got to get them out of my system now. <laughs> because turning a new leaf from here on out, you know, it's going to be mature um very very well-informed opinions, uh, you know, no shooting from the from the hip, uh, only only things that are revered for the for the most highest scholarly acumen. Those are the only things that are coming out of my mouth. Uh, so today is just a a slap D time. Yeah, yeah, that's why I thought we'd talk about just a slap D topic. Yeah. What? So, uh, when did you first get interested in seeds? <laughs> well like there's a legitimate answer to this question uh marigold seeds and people will hear that and be like oh man he was just in it because he was trying to get high no i didn't even know you could get high off marigold seeds when i got into marigold seeds (laughs) i don't even know what marigold seeds are so do you know the flower marigold it's a very I've common flower it. here in Texas. Works, does okay. really good in the sun. It doesn't get beaten down by hot, dry conditions. Um, you'll see them. They're like a sort of like a carnation style flower, but it's like yellow. Anyway, okay. um, it was like a really cool flower because it was very easy to cultivate. So when you were like a kid and you got your first garden one of the first packs of seeds, you know, is like the marigold seeds and like those do the best because they're so easy to grow. But then later when I started working at Callaway's nursery when I was 14, um, they had like the only thing in the store that was locked up were marigold seeds. And I had, I didn't know why, (laughs) (laughs) but apparently uh, you can like grind them up and get like an opiate level high out of them and so like anyone who came to buy marigold seeds were limited to two packets and we couldn't sell them to to kids under 18 years old that's wild (laughs) is that still the case because like a lot of just the store policy i don't think it was an actual law but it was just our store policy they were like locked up like they were condoms or something that's so weird uh yeah, another thing that should be locked up. Um wouldn't want wouldn't want any safe sex to accidentally happen. <laughs> I what isn't there like another seed that you can like brew a tea and it's supposed to be kind of an opiate thing, but then uh, the poppy people seeds? who do it 
I guess it's poppy seeds. I can't remember if it's this, but people are like, yeah, it's it's pretty good. You might also vomit every 30 minutes. <laughs> like, okay, well, I think um, I'd rather just do heroin. Than... Um, uh, but other, other seeds, big sunflower seed guy growing up baseball right baseball you know naturally you're gonna have like a whole pocket full of seeds and a whole cheek full of seeds all the time um so you know lots of lots of lots of sunflower seeds growing up but other than that i don't know i i no no big seed memories come to mind other than like uh you know the first time you masturbated or whatever okay that's great so what about um, your seed memories tell, tell me all about your seed you know, when you say sunflower seeds too, eating just like the already peeled ones is not no. anywhere near as satisfying. No, but, no. But it's all, it is kind of a beat. It's the crawfish of seeds. But there's a like, technique to it, you know? Like once you get the, get the mouth technique of like splitting a seed open, then peeling it with your teeth and then just discarding the shell and keeping the seed and you get really good at it, it's... I don't know. It's like mouth dexterity that all the women love. <laughs> I, I just remember like a ton of seeds in the artificial turf <laughs> uh, uh, for like football practice. And it's just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The The dugouts are the worst because in, uh, in both like city league baseball or where you go to the public fields or and even like high school and regular school baseball, like... Nobody fucking cleans those dugouts ever, <laughs> ever. Yeah. Like no one like just takes a hose and washes them out. So just the seeds. And of course, there. by the time you get in like a teenage years, there's like the kids who are chewing actual tobacco, even though they're like 14 years old. And then you have their big tobacco spit all over the place, too. It's it's just disgusting. Dugouts, baseball is it's one of the most disgusting places in the world. My stepdad played baseball um, back when, like, they, you would be able to get away chewing tobacco while playing, like, out in the field. Oh, yeah. I think you still um, can. I mean, they fought hard <laughs> to keep that as part of the collective bargaining agreement. Like, they, I think there were, like, uh, things that you couldn't... They're trying to limit the amount of time you could be on camera or be seen so they're not, like, chew while you're in the dugout or whatever. Oh, I... I meant like like in high school. Oh oh oh, and I, I was thinking uh, your dad was a professional baseball player. I thought that's what you were about to tell me. No no no, uh, and uh, he would just tell me that the best use of chewing tobacco uh, at that time, because uh, white cleats were also uh, in vogue, was to spit on the opposing player's cleats mm -hmm. so that it was stained. Yeah, in their face. <laughs> yeah, which I'm like, that sounds like a great way to get cleated, like, <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm sure that was going on quite a bit. I mean, that was going yeah. on all the time when I was playing baseball. Like, uh, the the one time I got one all the way from like the t my shin on my right leg, just underneath my knee, all the way down to the top of my foot. Just a nice gash, just right there. When a guy's cleat came up on me when I was playing second base, uh, some some guy at a track meet was walking backwards and bumped into me and gave me a scar from his 
metal spike mm. on his cleat. Uh, mm. But that was just on my ankle. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I cleated myself a lot in baseball accidentally yeah, kinda... <laughs> because like my pitching motion, my uh, my right foot would always drop down really close to my left leg. And sometimes if I was just a little bit too close, that inside cleat on my right foot would catch the the ankle ball of my on, on the inside part of my left foot and I would just slice that. So I would always have like Kurt Schilling bloody sock right there on the inside of my left foot because I would clip it a few times every game when I was pitching. Man, look at you. Just a tough guy. <laughs> and you're still here to talk about it. <laughs> so the the concept of the seed vaults, um, I, th- I honestly thought that this was going to be a deeper topic. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be way more complicated and way more like history to it, and the politics was going to be nuts. Um, but it's actually it's a utopia. Yeah, <laughs> it seems people who seem to be concerned with maintaining diverse genetic diversity of the world's food supply seem to be pretty good people. That you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. that's what what we've discovered. Like, if you're that altruistic of a person uh, pursuing that level of a goal. Uh, I can't find anything really bad to say about you politically or so or socially. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's funny because like the concept is just like a a gene bank, you know, and um, you know, uh, other people have had plenty of experience at gene banks or, um, you know, probably people who have gone through fertilization stuff. If you mm. went to a sperm bank or an you want to make called an egg bank. You want to make sure you get yourself an astronaut. You know, you <laughs> right. see all the profiles of all the of all the available sperm to put inside you. You're like, ooh, astronaut, ooh, Olympic athlete. <laughs> I did see uh, there was some story of like a person suing, like the guy that was the sperm donor, because uh, I think he had like not mentioned that his family had a history of of mental illness or like schizophrenia or something like that <laughs> well how did they find out after the fact <laughs> uh, i think like their kids started acting out like oh, and crazy. they were like obviously this doesn't come from my side of the family <laughs> <laughs> not my parenting at all <laughs> yeah that is the thing that scares me the most about kids is it is like uh i feel like this is an old ijb thing but it's just kind of like what do you do if your kid does turn out to be you know a psycho yeah it's uh i i think it it's one of those things where if you don't have kids it's easier to look at the abstract of it uh where you know most of it is nature and hardly any of it is nurture but then once you have kids there is such a uh, direct sort of analysis to whatever you do is dependent on the outcome of your child. Not necessarily that you're like, ooh, I want to take credit for it if the kid turns out good. But that, I'm sure that's like part of the the subconscious level of now, now all of a sudden, because I'm a parent... I see nurture as like the most important aspect of this child's life and it ha- nature is playing just a very little role in the outcome. And yeah. I think that's just has 
that just has to be some sort of parental bias. Like once you have your uh, a genetic copy of you that you're dealing with all the time, you're thinking, oh, well, obviously I'm molding this raw piece of clay in order to become a great human being when, I don't know. I, I really don't know how much you play into it. I, I think I think like the parental relationship has far more potential to do harm than good maybe um but that that's just my like uh my knee-jerk opinion on it when it comes to the nurture aspect but i i either way i think the nurture aspect of things probably weighs very little in the general outcome yeah <clears throat> i'm sure that they also appreciate hearing that they're not doing anything important <laughs> right 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 just <laughs> tell all your friends with kids that and see how it goes over at the next dinner yeah. party <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know a giraffe could do just as well <laughs> uh so the the gene bank like concept is is interesting um and then i was toying with the idea of like what happens if uh there is an apocalypse hey it's actually topical uh, and then, but what well, what kind of apocalypse? Like, are you talking like, oh no, a like pandemic, biological disaster apocalypse? Are you talking about like, oh no, it's a climate disaster apocalypse? Are you talking about like, oh no, it's World War Three apocalypse? Like, which which type are you talking about? Uh, the only real apocalypse, Jesus comes back. Oh uh, uh -huh. yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> I was just imagining what would the world be like when aliens decide to start mixing these things together and creating a world. Um, but then, <laughs> as you reminded me, it would just be either a bunch of Jeff Bezos's or Jeffrey Epstein's <laughs> yeah, running yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, uh, when the aliens come, back, come to find this scorched planet, but they're like, wow, look at this. They saved a bunch of genetic material from the previous living things. Maybe we could repopulate this planet with the, with the old, you know, original organisms that were on the planet. The only thing that's going to be in that gene bank, you know, it's just going to be fucking Bezos. You're going to have maybe you probably are going to get some Gates in there. I bet you get some Gates Gates genes in there. Just every and it's going to be all sperm that was collected on Little Saint James that they used to create little clone embryo babies that they are saving in the seed vault. <laughs> Has there been any news come out from that? Like they raided that place. Yeah, uh, I think the last thing was that um, the latest guy who was caught up in it as like the second in command to Epstein that would have known everything uh, was found that he hung himself in his jail cell a couple days ago. What? Yeah, I remember seeing that. <laughs> it's weird how they all they all they all choose the same way out. Yeah, I. <laughs> <laughs> it was man yeah there were some memes under that one too <laughs> just like uh hillary clinton on the phone so, yeah. the <laughs> caption of i'd like to place an order <laughs> calling prisons <clears throat> yeah the, i think there's the interesting angle for me on the seed vault stuff is more talking about like um how certain crops even became like digestible for agricultural purposes for human beings 
Because that's the other thing that's interesting when you find when you start to read this, you're like, oh wow, there's probably just such a huge diversity of types of plants that we eat that you know, even if one goes extinct, we'll be fine. But you kind of find out really there's not any very much diversity to the types of plants that we eat. <laughs> right. Yeah. We eat like four things, and there might be like a lot of different strains of those four things, but through you know two hundred thousand years of like gathering. <laughs> things inside the forest and on the plains for us to eat and then maybe another 15,000 years of actual cultivated agriculture we've only found a few plants that we've able been able to grow and then actually digest even like a little bit and be able to get some nutrients out of them we, we're not that great at digesting plant life and turning nutrients out of it but luckily we found a few plants that we can do that with but that just means that we only have a few plants that we can do that with. And if they go away, we don't have really any other way to get that type of uh, nutrient resource. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, the, the, hold on, I'm looking up two different things at once. Um, there's around 7,000 species of food crops globally. Mm -hmm. um, but there's only 12 of them that account for 80% of the global consumption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and from the start of like agriculture, there have been some studies done that found that the, like the act of agriculture really disrupted biodiversity of plants for good reason. I mean, if you're growing, um, you know, like a pepper or something, and the wild type is one that's like, you know, the size of your thumb, and then you have one that can grow to, you know, the size of your fist. It's like, obviously, they would choose the one that has more nutrients and stuff. Um, so it, it it makes sense. But then when you talk about, like, biodiversity, the problem, and this goes co this coincides a little bit with last week, like the melting permafrost and is there potential for like releases of bacteria or viruses mm -hmm. that that the plants of today didn't deal with that means you know you've bottlenecked it to a point where if there's one stop in the gap then you know it would be really bad yeah um and i'm also like uh this timed out well i've been listening to uh, like Matt Chrisman's solo episodes, mm -hmm. and he's been covering the the Dawn of Everything book, yeah, by uh David Graeber, yeah, and he calls them Grab Grow because he doesn't like saying both their names. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever the other guy is, Grover Cleveland, <laughs> David yeah, Graeber and Grover Cleveland, Grab Grow, strong duo. <clears throat> Have you been listening to him at all? No, I haven't. I it's it's cute on my thing. I just haven't been listening to it yet. Well, the most recent one it was like I think I don't know which chapter it was, but it was talking about agriculture as so essentially the book and I don't know if I've bought into the book as much. I'm also listening to it while doing chores. So, it's not like I'm reading the book myself. I'm listening to somebody else pick out the parts that they found interesting in the book. And he's doesn't really buy into their theory um <clears throat> essentially the book is trying to say like so 
I think one view is that agriculture is what formed hierarchies in society mm-hmm. and uh, the the dawn of everything book is trying to paint the picture anthropologically that uh, agriculture existed outside of hierarchies before hierarchies came to be and they're pulling from different stuff like in the fertile crescent there was like some uh societies you know back when it was 13,000 years ago so you got very small groups of people Mm -hmm. already but there's like no difference in the size of homes in this entire like area or and there's no like central kind of hierarchical state of place or whatever and then there's some uh contemporary tribes that do still do like some hunting and gathering um in africa and it's in regions where they can't really do agriculture and so in order for the the hunters to not get like a big head and think that they're more important they're like actually ridiculed in the village yeah <laughs> like it's not good to be a hunter yeah, there they're, they're just the dumb meatheads <laughs> <laughs> right so it's interesting but the most recent one uh was i i don't know it was depicting like one specific study and it was talking about how agriculture in some regions actually created gender equality because the you know the hunting was like the male thing to go do so then the females were uh, doing like all of the agriculture so that it was like equal footing in those societies. So it's kind of interesting because when you look at a lot of these seed vaults, they talk about it as to say this is 13,000 years of agricultural history. Mm-hmm. And sure, like in the book, they're trying to say society existed outside of agriculture, but you cannot deny that the rise of agriculture helped create civilizations because you could be in one place and form a culture you know that uh sapiens book that i read last month um one of the things that they point out is not that um the the way to think about it more is the is the reverse that agriculture is the thing that domesticated human beings yeah 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 so in a sense we we didn't domesticate crops. The thing that made us stop being nomadic and made us be like slaves to one patch of land. And now I have to like have a ton of babies to help me work this piece of land. And the thing that made it all of a sudden start to crop up in the uh, in the archaeological record that, oh, wow, look here. All of a sudden these people are showing up with these like slip discs in their spines these knee problems, all of this stuff that does not show up in the archaeological record of human beings beforehand. And it's because now they're all bent over all day <laughs> working on crops when they didn't used to do that. And our bodies did not evolve to be stuck in those types of positions for hours on end. And so you get herniated discs and back problems and arthritis in different parts of your joints that wouldn't happen otherwise. And there's like an entire shift, even in like the shape of the human skeleton and things that happen when agricultural kicks in. And it's so 
it's it's often the hubris of humanity to think, ah, and that is when we domesticated plant life, and that is when we domesticated animals, and then we domesticated, you know, and look at us taking power and dominion over everything, when really it was the other way around. Like, the thing that stopped us from our natural evolutionary path was the domestication of crops. Now we're stuck. Then we started domesticating animals. Now we're even more stuck. <laughs> so, like, right. that that's the real way to look at it than, than the reverse. Yeah, it's that's that's also like an argument that they make in the book. So it's it is kind of interesting to view it that way because the like you can no longer I don't know, it's hard to I I don't do it often, but to imagine how things would have gone differently, but like there's no way we would be doing podcasts <laughs> if, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if humans had not started getting stuck in one place. And so yeah, when you get stuck in one place, then the the politics and the culture and the societal issues that you don't have to deal with when you're just dealing with your tribe and you're moving from region to region, when you get stuck in one place, now all of a sudden trade takes even more importance than it did previously. Now I actually have to defend my stuff when before maybe it was just like, roaming battles between like raiding parties and things like that now i have a place that's always stationary and now it's ripe for you know people to come attack and take my stuff so now i need to build a bunch of walls and i need to <laughs> i need to like hire a bunch of people to help me fight off all of these other people all of that other stuff you know radiates out once you have to start being a much more stationary um civilization yeah so it's it is kind of interesting that it's progressed so far that these like seed vaults and stuff have existed. I don't know, it's it feels like a very modern take on on all of that history that okay, well there was all of this I don't know anger, not anger, but there was like probably just a lot of wars over all of these resources. And now um, we've come to a place where at least part of the world can be comfortable just sharing their stuff all over the world so that uh, it maintains safety. I don't know. There's, as you were saying, like at the top, the altruism of a lot of these scientists is like through the roof because they, their care for these things is not like obviously not driven by profits because no, if, if you just got no, seeds there's no money there's not really even that much money being put into preserving these things they're you're having to do the most with the bare minimum in a lot of right. these situations and but uh, you know it is like the uh geopolitical utopia of actually right now in the seed vault in norway there's seeds directly next to each other from both Russia and Ukraine. They're just sitting right there next to each other on a shelf. Friendly yeah. little little partners in in maintaining the biodiversity of the genetic agriculture of the planet. <laughs> I mean they I think in one of the videos they were showing uh there's North Korean seeds right next to US seeds, right next to South Korean seeds. Yeah. And they you know, they're all like kind of kooky because they're people who spend their time 
with seeds, even though it's not an active, there's not like people there all the time. No. So and you I don't even want, know And you wouldn't want a lot of people there all the time. Right. Yeah. You're trying uh, to maintain like the, 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 pre- the preservation of that stuff. You don't want to contaminate and all the other stuff. Right. It's, it's something where like they, but they are goofy enough that they're just like, well, these seeds don't care that they're from North Korea. They're just seeds. <laughs> it's like, your your Norwegian yeah. accent is on point, Eric. You should do it more often. <laughs> yeah the um the 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 interesting thing about the big seed vault in Norway, which is the one that we're talking about primarily, um, it uh, it's only been around since. When did they start construction on that? 2005, I think? 2004? Uh, yeah. The guy... It opened in 2008, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, the uh, the main dude, Carrie, what's his face? What's his name? What's his name, Eric? You know it. I didn't find his name. You know it. I was... Svalbard... Global Seed Vault. No, he's an name. he's an American dude. Carrie, who got it started. He created it. Carrie Fowler. He's the one who uh, was doing the seed vault or the sort of seed storage campaign before the seed vault was uh, built, and he's the one who petitioned Norway after doing surveys all up in the Arctic. He went and had the meeting with the Norwegian leadership and was like trying to explain to them how important this would be for science, how important this would be for the world. And uh, the Norwegian leadership interrupted him and was like, so let me get this straight. You're telling me that these seeds are one of the most important natural resources ever known to human history. And he's like, yeah. And you're telling me that the place where we can preserve them the best is here in Norway? And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. He's like, well, I can't see how we could say no. Here's the money to do it. Let's build this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine. Um, <laughs> the It was insane to me how cheap it was until I saw like the videos of the inside of the place. And it does, I, I think Norway got jobbed on the construction cost a little bit. <laughs> it's like the size of a grapevine house. Like <laughs> it's. Well, the tunnel, like they tunneled down into a mountain at a downward angle. And so like the primary entrance and the length of the tunnel as you enter into the seed vault, that's like uh, one and a half football fields long. It's like 450 feet or so long, big, long tunnel entrance as you go down in there. And it gets cooler and cooler and cooler as you creep down into the frozen underground part of the mountain. But yeah, once you get into the actual like storage part it's just like some old recycled home depot shelves (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just a little warehouse (laughs) like a like a card catalog system (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was also surprised at the boxes so the the boxes too just have to be like a certain size and so you get like these high-tech plastic boxes probably from the u.s or Germany or something like that and then the DPRK is sending handmade wooden boxes of course um, <laughs> it's kind of cool 
but the the total construction cost was eight point eight million dollars. Um, and then doesn't seem like a lot, it, especially to build that at the like, you know, whatever three hundred miles away from the North Pole in in the most frigid temperatures on the planet. Like <laughs> I would think, just like the uh, logistics of getting the equipment up there to do any of the building was like twenty million, just to get like. Just to have coffee for the guys to be able to do the construction. That was that was going to be at least five million right there, just for that, you know. But the whole deal yeah. is only eight million dollars. Well, that was the other thing. They were like, you know, this uh, these seeds are protected by like four or five blast-proof doors, and it's on it's on this island. It's on an archipelago uh, in Norway that it's eight hundred miles from the North Pole, but it's it is like far from norway it's it's not off the coast or anything it is like it's like how did how does norway have claim over this plot of land (laughs) because it's it is so far away from the country um but it's you know they chose the location for the temperature but also saying like it's not going to be involved in any conflicts so surely there's no conflicts that could happen between say Russia and the Nordic countries they have gotten along for millennia but the blast doors are there there's like four or five heavy ones and then uh on top of that they have just what they call their natural security guards because the island is populated with polar bears (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) well and some reindeer and some caribou <laughs> but I can't imagine, yeah, being in a caterpillar and then looking out my window <laughs> and there's just a polar bear like hanging out. Um, but the operation cost is also extremely low at $282,000 a year. Yeah. Which is like and the but the the uh the outreach that has to go on with like all of these non-NATO, non-UN countries in order to get them to all work along. And it's basically this Carrie Fowler guy, like, just calling people and being like, hey, so I know you got a lot of disagreements with, like, Western civilization, but uh, it's kind of important to save these seeds. So I know that you got seeds in your country. Um, I'm not asking for you to give me those seeds. I'm just asking you to give me some copies, and I'll keep them here in my my fridge up here in Norway, just in case anything happens, and if anything does, uh, you know, I'll give these copies back to you so you can, you know, replenish your crops. Uh, no cost to you, no cost to me. It's just a free relationship here. How how does that sound to you? And I, like he thought that he would only get maybe like a sixty percent response rate when he started this thing, and he's had a hundred percent response rate from all of the countries that he has like uh petition to get their seeds from them yeah it's pretty great like (laughs) i mean obviously people are responding to it but they're like yeah sounds like a good idea (laughs) like the the place can hold like four million crops but it only has like one third of its vaults even full at the Mm -hmm. moment but it's also insane that the agreement is like like they have to sign an agreement and say they're not putting any uh drug seeds in there um and there's not like any genetically modified seeds uh which I think is kind of stupid uh but that's like a Norway law 
But outside of that, they're like, the seeds get shipped and they scan them as if they were at the airport, like do an x-ray, but the people don't open the boxes. Mm-mm. Like it, it could be like the person was like, we scan it to make sure there's not explosives in here, <laughs> but we're not actually checking the contents. And Norway does not claim any ownership over them. Uh, the seed vault doesn't claim any ownership. They act solely like a bank in that there's this black box and the country owns them or, you know, the organization that mm-hmm. sent them. And uh, they can pull them out at any time that they want. Um, nobody else has any access to them. And yeah, it's free to do. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It's It's a nuts idea. And it's actually been in practice before um there's like a seed another there's there's tons of seed vaults there's like 15 to 1700 seed vaults around the world yeah and the 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 importance of the one in norway was kind of uh when carrie was going through in his previous job before he was in charge of the norwegian seed vault um he was in charge of cataloging seeds all around the world, but he would go to these other seed vaults and they're not, we just talked about how cheap the Norwegian one was. That one is state of the art (laughs) compared to a lot of the ones around the rest of the world. Like he found ones where all of the seeds were bad because people hadn't gone inside of it in like 10 years and the refrigeration system had broken down and just no one knew. Um, There's ones uh, where like, yeah, they were refrigerated and kept properly, but years ago people had like lost the key to the freezer. So no one had been able to open the freezer for, for like five years. So who knows what was in there still. It just uh very poor like management systems, seeds just kind of haphazardly thrown in into like cellars and places without any good categorization. So you really didn't know what seed was categorized as what when you went and found them. Um, and that was a big impetus for doing the Norwegian one because so much was in disarray all around the rest of the world. Yeah, and the the Svalbard one, they sort of operate on the mentality that they're a backup for other seed vaults. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and, you know, there's different reasons that other seed vaults would be so cheaply managed. Obviously, you can imagine... Uh, people just don't want to put money into something like that. But there are some regions where like a lot of the crops that they have are not able to be stored for long terms of time. Like there's there's certain seeds that you can uh, you can dry them and have them in a certain type of humidity and then freeze them at like minus 20 Celsius uh, and they're good for a long time others you have to like immediately freeze and like liquid nitrogen others you have to cryo preserve so that there's like proteins and stuff around that protects the seeds and the genetic information uh but there's certain regions where you know maybe they don't have the infrastructure capacity to deep freeze or the seeds aren't really able to be frozen so they only keep a seed vault like every year like they just change it out every year in case there's like widespread crop failure um Mm -hmm. so that they can at least have the seeds for the next year or something so there's some reason to it being 
like so cheaply run in other areas because it's just they're not planning on well in 5,000 years humans are going to want to know what corn was like right Um, but the 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 big important factor to that is that it might not be an issue where in 5,000 years we might need to resurrect a version of corn it might be like now we need to resurrect a version of corn or wheat that was prevalent a few thousand years ago because it has a robustness against a certain type of disease or a certain type of drought. And this was a big deal with the seed vault is that they also have all of the stuff categorized based upon what types of environments that the different uh, crops can thrive in. And as climate change is happening, the um, when we're going to be able to grow certain crops and as and how those seasons change and as like harvest time actually moves on the physical calendar to different parts of the year. And then those are actually not just different parts of the year, but also different latitudes of the planet than we had previously used for agriculture, you're going to have to do a lot more of finding the right version of the crop that can potentially grow in that environment in order to keep the diversity going as certain areas of the planet where we used to really thrive agriculturally now become drought stricken or too hot too long during the year to be able to yield a harvest Um, So you're going to have to do a lot more mixing and matching with different regions of the world with crops that didn't necessarily come from that native region of the world because now the climate has changed to make that happen. And there's an interesting story about this, too. Um, Right before the Norwegian Sea Vault was started, um, back in 2002, um, right after the initial invasion of the United States into Afghanistan, Um, After 9-11, the Taliban um, raided a seed bank in Afghanistan. They didn't know it was a seed bank. They wanted all of the plastic containers that were inside the seed bank. So they went in there and they just took all the plastic containers and dumped all the seeds out and just took all the plastic containers with them. And so this was one of the first like, oh, wow, we had a catastrophe at a seed bank, and now we got to figure out all these seeds on the floor, like which one is which, and how do we, do we just throw a bunch away because we can't catalog them? But a lot of it was very important because in Afghanistan, the um, nature of the agriculture there, because of the type of climate that the the country has, you have a lot of very diversified um, species of grains, wheat, uh, pomegranates, legumes, uh, chickpeas that are very hardy. They're robust to drought. They they can grow in high altitudes where it's cold. They can uh, be without uh, any types of any types of seasonal rain for long periods of time, and then the crops will still come back. So those were very important, especially for like the future yielding of crops around the world as the climate changes. So it was very important to keep those, and that was one of the first projects of trying to uh, salvage some of that information and then put that into the Norwegian seed vault in order to hold that over. But that's just sort of an example. 
this has happened all other times too, like with wheat. There's been a issue with wheat um, for a while now that it's not as nutritious the the types that we're growing. Um, there is some correlative evidence that the uh, the all the people that have the issues with gluten allergies and things like that, more ancient strands of wheat do not produce the same type of reactions as the more modern strains of wheat. And that might have to do with uh, sort of a commercialization of the agriculture of wheat has made it better for certain types of harvest, but also created this uh, this sort of uh, gluten side effect that wasn't there prevalent in the older versions of wheat that were necessarily in like Egypt and other places. So there's been uh, attempts at trying to bring back some of these older strains of wheat back into the agricultural process to counteract some of those effects. Very, It's also being done with corn because like in the United States, we've kind of homogenized corn into this one type of plant when it was an extremely diversified um, plant beforehand. And there's a uh, big, not just... Uh, genetic effort for the diversity of the of the crop but also a big cultural movement because corn was such a cultural staple for the native peoples of america and all the different types of corn um were very culturally relevant so being able to save all of those um is is very important too yeah the one in particular that i was looking up um the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas, uh, the ICARDA one, which is has the connection to Svalbard. They were established in 1977, uh, but they, they started in 1973 with a study that highlighted the food security challenges of dry regions in like the Near East and North Africa. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, as you're saying, like, this is why, you know, these types are so important because more areas are going to change and we're going to need way more information on, like, the types of grains that can even grow in dry air, dry and hot areas. But they, uh, it was intended to be founded in, like, Lebanon, but the... Uh, Lebanese Civil War of 75, I guess. Instead of the eruption of Civil War, I'm assuming it was in Lebanon, um, made that impossible. So then the then president of Syria, um, who was hoping to secure his own country's agriculture, uh, started working with them and offered them some land near Aleppo. Mm-hmm. And so they were, you know, building their seed vault in Aleppo. Well, in 2012, the civil war in Syria broke out, um, and that seed vault was like bombed, yeah. and they lost like all of their seeds, um, and so they were able to in uh, 2015 take some of their seeds out from Svalbard and replant a lot of them to replenish their seeds that they had built built up, uh, and did the same in 2017. And that's like the the big sort of importance of showing why you need this like totally independent seed vault kind of thing. Because like you have 
yeah, many different seed vaults and you have agriculture going on. But if you have war breakout or um, as we're going to be seeing in the next few decades, wars while climate is accelerating in a really wild way, um, you're going to need those people who have the bigger picture in mind and understand that we need to make sure that we can still grow things because if you have a worldwide famine, that's going to be bad. Yeah, and Uh, you don't want it to be managed by any political body that can then hold the seeds hostage if they don't like the way that the leaders or the world are acting on the world stage, you know, this is more about maintaining the genetic biodiversity of agriculture, not, uh, trying to, uh, influence geopolitical conflict or, or by using seeds as sanctions or something. (laughs) You don't want to do that. You don't want to start using the seeds as a way of, uh, manipulating everything on the world stage because, you could actually jeopardize biodiversity of agriculture. And uh, while we're talking about that, I would like to point out the fav- my favorite place to keep my seeds uh, is with Coinbase. Uh, yeah. Download Coinbase <laughs> now uh, in your app store. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, um, the, I guess the other interesting thing was like the Aleppo um, incident, like the a- Afghanistan incident. Um, seemingly lots of the seed vaults previous to the um, existence of the one in Norway did become casualty potential casualties of global conflict um, like the 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 harrowing story of the scientists during the siege of Leningrad is one that like that's the 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 sort of most interesting or the one that stuck with me the most from from all the reading um and i like i i so world war 2 the nazis uh have a siege going on of of leningrad and before um the nazis completely surround the city they they do evacuate quite a few people and quite a few very important uh, government resources for Russia from the, from the city. The thing they forget to evacuate is their store of seeds. So at the time, they had a very robust seed vault full of rice and grains and uh, potatoes and all of the other agriculture that had been done in Russia. And, and the, the guy that started that, Nikolai Vavilov, he like had dedicated his life to finding like the grains and stuff that could maintain human like humankind of like the type that you need to make sure that people have food to eat mm-hmm. and the i remember now when we had talked about this previously on the podcast is when we had talked about his the competitor um Lysenko or what was his competitor? Yeah, Lysenko. Lysenko, yeah. He was the one who had convinced Stalin through a bunch of bullshit uh, scientific presentations that his idea of uh, of crops, basically meaning that there was no gene transfer between crops. He, this was his big scientific idea. Hey, and r- the rest of the world has it wrong. In Russia, we're going to grow 
amazing yields of agriculture because we understand that genes don't actually play a role in in the mating and and reproduction of crops and he convinced stalin of this <laughs> yeah i i actually looked up like what his thinking was um the it's called lamarckism uh, and it's a notion that organisms can pass on to its offspring physical characteristics that the parent organism acquired during its lifetime. So it's instead of thinking that things are passed by genes, the thinking is things are passed uh, through learning. Yeah, by but experience. But that, that happens with plants. Yeah. <laughs> and so instead of like planting a bunch of crops their idea was well let's graft a bunch of crops together where mm-hmm. you just uh slice open like part of the tree and put another tree onto it and then wrap those together and they grow together and it's stronger it's a pear so peach thing- tree <laughs> the thing with it is uh then yeah those seeds that it produces are like sterile yeah you you made a bunch of donkeys is what you did right (laughs) (laughs) and i when i was like reading this though i was like okay this guy i mean i know the nazis during this time had a bunch of wildly stupid science ideas but come on genes and stuff uh but then i was looking it up and remembered oh yeah like uh gregor mendel was less than a hundred years before yeah But Vavilov was genes. a huge Mendel guy, and that's why he was like, Mendel, right. guys! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did you get into his uh, prison sentence? Uh, yeah, it's, I, I knew that he was thrown in the gulag, um, and but he didn't die in prison, right? Uh, he, his... Death sentence, I mean, he was sentenced to death, <laughs> first of all, um, f- and they sentenced him under, like, uh, you know, espionage kind of stuff, um, which, understandable that they could actually get that, because he was, I guess, talking to other countries to get their seeds. Right, right. Um, so you could, that one, you know, that's a little bit less of a leap. Uh, I don't think he actually did that, but... Um, so he was sentenced to death, but they then, yeah, commuted him to a 20 year prison sentence and he did die in prison in 1943. Okay. Um, but in 1955, his death was, uh, posthumously, uh, pardoned by Nikita. Okay. So Khrushchev was like, yeah, but what, what if I say he didn't die in prison? (laughs) Yeah. Which it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Khrushchev was like going through like the de-Stalinizing um, phase. Yeah, uh, and so it was just funny to me. Uh, I popped on the ticket this morning just to see what they were talking about. I rarely listen to the musers, but it was right when they were speaking about Russia and Ukraine, and George said that uh, Putin is the worst they've seen since Stalin or Khrushchev. And I was like, ah, those two guys were a little different. <laughs> But they're best friends. They're just hanging out all the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the the guy, like, was a good guy building up the Leningrad Seed Bank. Right. Yeah, he had his own... They had their own experimental storage place. But they... So, they... 
they know the siege is coming. They know the Nazis are coming and they're evacuating the city of all like the paintings, all the most valuable stuff because they don't want the Nazis to steal like the valuable stuff. They forget to evacuate the seed vault. So the seeds, all of these valuable seeds, the entire agricultural future of Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Because like we said, they did not, they went with the other guy's agricultural plan to make a bunch of uh, a evolutionary dead-end donkey plants. And so they are facing, if, if, if they lose this, <laughs> this seed bank, they've made all of the agriculture in Russia basically evolutionarily done. And I mean, they yeah, <laughs> they did face famines in Russia right. because of this guy's like <laughs> poor understanding of... So if they lose, there's like there's like a handful group of scientists who've been holding on and preserving this that know that if this seed these seeds go away, there's no more crops being grown in this country, right? Which sounds bad, but you also have to remember, like you can't just say, "Well, we'll just eat chickens," because like the the chickens need to eat something. And the cows need Chickens to eat something. Eat <laughs> yeah. The, the cows don't eat other cows to, to make us have steaks. There's like a, there's a whole process here. And we kind of need the, the agricultural pieces available for the animals to eat so we can eat the animals. Um, so the, the siege of Leningrad, and, you know, if you don't know the story of the siege of Leningrad, the Cliff's Notes are... Uh, most of the people starved to death <laughs> because yeah. not, not not just the scientists, you know, protecting the seed vault, but like everyone in the city. There's no food in the city. They're besieged by the Nazis. People are eating rats and then they run out of rats to eat. Um, the, the actual stories of people boiling, you know, their leather belts and boots to eat until they didn't know no longer had leather belts and boots to eat. Um, that, that was all happening in for real and these scientists had to protect a seed vault and the idea that you know it was it's some kind of like a protected scientific room with a with like a big vault door on it it's not like that these are like just burlap sack bags full of rice <laughs> yeah so so anyone seeing you is like why don't we just boil up some of that rice <laughs> <laughs> fucking starving to death right yeah it's of the um i don't know how many scientists stayed there to protect the seeds but nine of them did die of starvation and one of them uh is famously known for dying like while being surrounded by bags of rice like he was still guarding them while he was dying of starvation um, because they understood the importance of the seeds, like that's that's a whole other level of oh, <laughs> commitment, yeah. and not not just in the context we can look back with now with hindsight, being like, oh yeah, we know how World War II ended, we know how all this stuff is, and so those seeds would have been very important to the country of Russia. In their minds, in that moment, surrounded by the Nazis in Leningrad, who have completely blitzkrieged Europe and taken Paris and everything else at this point. In their minds, for those scientists, as they're starving to death, they're not thinking about the preservation of Russia. They're thinking about the preservation of humanity and the world. They're thinking that this this is the end of the actual civilized world right now. 
they're they're not thinking, oh yeah, this is just going to be like a contained th- event, and all of humanity is going to go on. It's going to be amazing. They they can only be thinking that this is actually the apocalypse type of scenario for them, and that them preserving the seeds is going to be maybe the last vestige of a thing that gives humanity hope to come back from the the ashes that it is that it is burning under right now that that's the that's the other thing is just to put your mind into what they must have been thinking at that time <laughs> because we're you're not in the time where you're like oh yeah everyone's starting to get the upper hand on these nazi punks <laughs> right yeah I mean, it was is twenty eight months long. We haven't even had twenty eight months of the pandemic right. in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> like we're just now coming up to twenty eight months of uh, even knowing that the coronavirus existed. Now imagine you had no access to food <laughs> that entire time, <laughs> but you were surrounded by food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that one's a harrowing story for sure. Um, cause it, it's sort of, you know, I don't know if every single seed vault person is thinking that, but you do, when you work in science at some level, you do start to feel, you know, um, maybe the people think this at like big pharma companies that are finding ways to financially bankrupt, um, you know, people with diabetes, but outside of them, um, <laughs> you do sort of feel like, okay, maybe my part in whatever I'm doing is not insanely important uh, or maybe I think it's silly. Like some of the research I was doing uh, when I was in a lab, I'm like, this doesn't really make sense to me. But you can start to imagine, well, in the bigger picture of things, like this could be something huge. Um, Like, you know, I was researching how bone grows in muscle tissue like abnormally mm-hmm. and so it was trying to find a way to like quickly repair broken bones and stuff like that so you can start to see how that might have an impact but when you're talking about like seeds in the survival of humanity <laughs> it's like immediately at the top of how important you feel like the work you're doing is so i don't know if every single person really has that perspective but viewing it and viewing like the other seed vaults that are trying to maintain um survivability for people is pretty cool yeah Um, and if you when you hear when i listen to a few of these interviews with these different seed vault scientists it is kind of uh they have a very sort of uh religious type of conviction about it where you know they're like yeah i was working in another field of science and then i started to learn about the you know the need to maintain this biodiversity and how how at peril it is and how fragile of a balance it is and then i just knew i knew that was my calling i knew that was my purpose and so i've just dedicated my life to it it's very if it sounds very much like all the things that you heard when you were in church as a kid. <laughs> yeah. But like that they they do have that much of a much of a personal conviction for it. And I really think the one the Millennium Seed Bank partnership that's in uh Sussex is kind of a cool one. Um that one is notable uh because it's like 
has the most space. So it's the technically the largest seed vault. Like it, it could potentially become the largest seed vault. I don't know if they have more seeds than anywhere else right now, but that place, um, they, the whole act of it, it's different than the Svalbard, which is just like a bank. This place does active research on all of the seeds that get donated. Uh, so they're like going in whenever they get donations and stuff and finding the ones that have like the individual seeds that have the most uh, likely chance of producing like the most nutritious uh crops and everything like that and they're going in and finding okay well how do these seeds do in this kind of condition and how can we like grow uh, these types of seeds in this soil or if it becomes way hotter and all that kind of stuff Um, and they also test the seeds every 10 years it hasn't been open for 10 years but they test them every 10 years for viability so then they like will mm-hmm. plant some of the seeds to make sure, okay, yeah, they're still good to grow. Because that's the other thing with seeds. Like, I don't know the last time you looked at a seed, but it doesn't give you a whole lot of information. No, no, no. <laughs> well, and that that's, I, we were talking before about how tough it was to just research sort of like the standard method of preserving a seed. Because depending on the seed, if it's like a flowering seed or if it's a a fruit bearing seed, uh, all of them have different characteristics. Uh, it's similar. Like when we were talking about uh, forest fires and stuff, you know, like conifers survive because they have very specific seed um, apparatus that when they have these, the cones that drop, they get exploded like a, uh, like kernels of popcorn when they're exposed to fire. And only then did the seeds get released. So like the, the, there's a lot of, um, evolutionary adaptations that go all the way down to the seed level and they're all different. The way they, they absorb moisture is different. The way that some of them need to have a little bit of moisture inside them to be preserved. Some of them, you don't want to touch them with moisture at all or it'll ruin them. (laughs) It's just tough to know. You have to, there's, there's not a lot of analysis you can do from the outside unless you first germinate it to see what happens and then you can do the from what you learn from the germination process then you can be like okay now we can apply that to the rest of the seeds in this group yeah i found the uh what were they called uh the field gene banks are super interesting (laughs) that are just like those uh, conservatories where they plant a ton of different types of trees and crops and everything, um, but in a protected area so that they can like research how they grow and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's like insane that there's um, like there's one in India that has 42,000 different varieties of rice <laughs> <laughs> that it's just like a living. Uh, I mean, it, it was kind of like a rice is a crazy plant, and and <laughs> just as it is, because like some yeah. of it requires totally arid growth. Some of it was like, no, I I got to be underwater. I got to be under like five feet of water to grow. 
and they're <laughs> yeah, both I was the trying same to look plan. <laughs> I was trying to look up like how uh, rice even grows, and like I guess the grain that you eat is the seed. Yeah. They probably polish off like the most of it so that you wouldn't be able to just plant the, you know, your bag of jasmine yeah, rice yeah, in the yeah. ground. But yeah, it's it is very weird, and it requires water at different points of however much growth it has. Like some of them have to be submerged in like, you know, two inches of water for it to start sprouting. And then once it gets to a height of like two feet, then it needs like um, almost a foot of it to be water. And then once ever it's close to getting harvested, it needs no water. And yeah, rice is a weird one. But I didn't know there was 42,000 different types of rice. Yeah, and they're going to need them all because because as these different regions change their climate drastically, it's not all going to be like, uh, you know, the southeastern Asia everywhere to where you can just grow this certain type of rice that really loves these very humid, wet climates. It's not always going to be that way. And like rice is what what was the statistic it's like the primary dietary staple of something like 68 percent of the planet i mean it it makes sense (laughs) um (laughs) as uh, mitch hedberg put it rice is great when you're hungry and you want ten thousand of something yeah (laughs) well like the there's the very american corn um and, but even before I was reading on, I got off on a sidetrack on the cultures of corn and how like the native peoples, like from an archaeological standpoint, when you go and you look at the their genetic makeup, that because corn was such a high staple of the diet, like it's actually in their, in their genome, like it's in their makes up part of their DNA is like the, how much corn was part of the diet. Um, and, uh, and so like we've, we've kept up with that tradition in America. One of, one of the few native traditions we've kept up with is corn. (laughs) (laughs) I did read that in 2020, uh, the Cherokee nation became the first U S tribe to deposit, uh, samples of food crops that predate European colonization. So there's also like this kind of cool cultural aspect of it yeah. that you can preserve, which obviously won't matter when we're all like uh, drowning in seawater and needing to find places to grow food. But, you yeah. know, it is, from my <laughs> perspective, cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if um, if it was like in Japan, if there was any deity associated with rice but like in the native american cultures and in central american and south american um cultures like there is a direct deity relationship with corn like it is a god it is like a mother god type of provincial provincial thing um amongst those groups so it's it's not just a it's not just a crop. It's also like a religious heritage as well, a cultural heritage. Yeah, it says that uh, there was a god of protecting rice cultivation. I mean, that's probably more like a Shinto thing. Um, obviously, Buddhism doesn't really have gods. Uh, but yeah, so there. But there's not like a current. I don't think people currently 
believe it would There's be not like a you rice know, altar where you go and you make your sacrifices to the rice god. Oh, there definitely is. Um, I mean, we <laughs> we had a shrine next to us. Uh, there was walking distance. There was a shrine for the protection of pets. Okay. Uh, so it was. You've got shrines to everything there. Um, so yeah, but it was it was one that was very popular for people taking their dogs wearing like traditional Japanese clothes and taking photos. <laughs> I think we found some photos. Somebody had dressed their turtle up, uh, like in a kimono, nice. <laughs> taking a photo there. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, the, I don't know, it, it, like I was saying, I thought that this was going to be like a deeper sort of thing, but it seems like everybody involved is very good at what they're doing, like good hearted. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I guess the, the good news that ties it back to last week, uh, the permafrost did have a higher than expecting melting um back in 2017 in the summer months in norway and caused a big amount of water intrusion into the seed bank um it was designed to handle water intrusion um initially because there are freeze thaw cycles during the warm months um so they knew that you know we're gonna we're digging a big vault and underground into an ice cave there's probably going to be some water intrusion but since that water intrusion Um, from 2017 they have redesigned a bunch of it to prevent water intrusion now and they dug a bunch of um, side channel shafts to evacuate any kind of water that might melt that are inside the walls of the seed vault so yes it is a problem for the seed vault that the permafrost is melting but it, they already had to keep it colder than they could have. It was naturally underground, and they're going to have to keep pumping refrigerated air down there anyways to keep it at negative 18 or whatever they keep it down there. Because I think like the resting temperature is like negative between negative 2 and negative 4, um, and they got to keep it at negative 18. There's, as somebody who used to stick my arms in deep freezers, um, there's a big difference between minus four and minus 20. Yeah, yeah, or minus yeah. 18 that they keep it at. Like, <laughs> <laughs> minus four, you can go in barehanded and just grab something. Uh, minus 20 starts to get a little chilly. And then uh, my favorite, the minus 80, was uh, that was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to go in like full mask covering in there so your nose doesn't just frostbite right off? <laughs> well, these they weren't like walk-in freezers, okay. so... We did have a pretty cold walk-in freezer. I want to say it was minus four. Uh, that like you, yeah, I think so. That you would keep like a bunch of the like liquid media in that you grow stuff in petri dishes and stuff. Um, but no, no walk-in minus eighty. It was just a the latch on it was insane to close. You all, my job as the grunt was to chip off the ice because <laughs> ice would build up on the seal and then it wouldn't yeah, be closing yeah. properly. Um, but I mean, I did other stuff too. I kept my little snipped mouse tails in there so that I could. You also opened all the jars of pickles that none of the scientists could open. <laughs> yep. That was, that was also what I did. <laughs> I did microsurgery too. 
So I've I've cut animals open while they were um, alive. Yeah. All right. Put them to sleep. Give them a little. Did you lose any patients on the table? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was also in charge of killing a lot. Did of you them. have to call it like a doctor? You know, <laughs> I did the first few times. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> I I was probably supposed to be keeping like way more accurate notes and everything, but uh, yeah, I remember like in college they would, you would have to whenever you did like a lab, take insane notes and document everything. Like I remember my OChem lab that I had to take, we had to document every single chemical and write out like the the MSDA or whatever, like the you know chemical composition mm-hmm. and what to do if it gets on you for every chemical we encountered that included water <laughs> it's like what, what do you what do i do if helium gets on me oh <laughs> yeah it's like, do i have to account for the air um yeah that that lab tech too who was teaching that class uh was also going through a legal battle with baylor because he uh, had nitroglycerin scorch his skin on the side of his neck and uh, they weren't willing to pay for any of the mm. medical bills. Mm. So mm. 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 Uh, it's fun. I actually it wasn't nitroglycerin. It was some kind of acid. They told him. To, I can't remember. They what. told him to pray the scar away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> that is, there's some more lab time with Eric. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's a recurring segment. All right, man. Well, that's pretty much all I have on on seed vaults. I I hope that uh, that uh, we don't we don't lose any any seed seed banks in this whole Ukrainian mess. That- yeah, I meant to look up this morning if they had a seed vault. Surely they do. If there's seventeen hundred in the world, yeah, I think they got to. They got to have a seed vault. I mean, if, if North the- Korea does. Oh, Amazon.com has Ukrainian seeds. That was the other thing. I was Googling seed vaults, um, as I do. And uh, one of them like popped up on Google Maps. It was like in California. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like, I'll look into this one. This will be really interesting. And I go to their website. And uh, it's just the name of a place that sells you high-quality weed seeds. There you go. <laughs> See, we that's what we need. We need to start a marijuana seed bank because i don't know if they can keep those in norway they can't or they're not supposed to um but they don't check the contents there you so go. yeah i bet uh, you they go got it. they got all the opium they got all the poppies up there they got fucking they got all the best shit they're growing all See, the that's best what I, shit. I thought that this place was going to be that I thought like, oh, okay, of course, in California we've got like a yeah, yeah, a marijuana yes. seed vault. <laughs> no, it's it's some pharma that's like got got a bunch of seeds to grow poppies so that they can uh, make a bunch of Vicodin. Right, exactly. <laughs> they, they were worried once once we got out of Afghanistan that they were going to lose <laughs> lose their direct pipeline <laughs> to to their poppy <laughs> poppy farms. Yeah, nobody look up military. U.S. military poppy field. Yeah, yeah. Those pictures don't exist. Don't look it up. <clears throat> All right, man. Until next week. Bye.